The older gentleman sat still in the hospital bed behind the curtain, listening to the hustle and bustle on the other side. Hearing, we need Dr. X to sign the consent for patient in room four. Dr. Y said patient in room three will be delayed because he had coffee with milk. The gentleman sat still in his hospital stretcher, looking at his hospital gown and socks. It's chilly in here, he thought to himself. He had never had surgery before. How is the medication going to make him feel? How will he wake up? Will he remember anything? These thoughts raced through his head as a young woman walked through the curtains and introduced herself. Hi, I'm Dr. Smith. I'll be your anesthesiologist. Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Welcome back to another episode of The Hurt. So today, we're going to try to answer all those burning questions you may have about being under anesthesia during surgery. So patients are often so anxious before surgery, not about the surgery itself, but about the anesthesia. And I think that has a lot to do with not having information on anesthesia before surgery. So, you know, before surgery, most of the time, you probably meet your surgeon several times or at least once, but most of the time you don't meet the anesthesiologist until the actual day of the surgery. So by that point, you're a bundle of nerves and we really have a limited amount of time to reassure you. So let's get into some of the nitty-gritty regarding anesthesia so that hopefully you get a lot of those questions answered before the actual day of surgery. So let's start with, how safe is anesthesia? Well, anesthesia is actually really safe. The risk of death from anesthesia used to be about 1 in 100,000 anesthetics, or 0.001%, from 1999 to 2005 before the usage of even newer technology and safety protocols. So now, by 2021, it's probably even less because there have been an unbelievable amount of advancements in the field in the past 40 years or so. And these advancements range from the safety of the actual anesthetic medications used to monitoring devices to making sure you're safe and taken care of during surgery to airway equipment to making sure your breathing is stable and to protocols in the operating room to prevent errors. But I totally get why patients would be so nervous. Yeah, it's definitely a vulnerable situation to be in. I've had sedation before for an endoscopy, and despite being an anesthesiologist, I was also nervous about the losing consciousness part. But knowing what we know, I knew it was extremely safe and that I was in good hands. But sometimes as humans, we feel a fear of the unknown, which is a normal emotion. So today, we're going to get into some of the most common questions the two of us as anesthesiologists have gotten from patients. And hopefully, we can set your mind at ease. Let's start by talking about who exactly an anesthesiologist is 
And what exactly is anesthesia? So an anesthesiologist is a physician, either an MD or a DO. And in the U.S., after high school and a four-year undergraduate college degree, we have done another four years of medical school, followed by four years of residency in anesthesiology, and possibly another year of fellowship to further subspecialize after that. So we're really well-trained, to say the least. I also want to mention that your anesthesia team may actually include a few other members, including either a certified nurse anesthetist, a resident who is a medical doctor in their anesthesia training, or a certified anesthesiologist assistant. They all play vital roles in the anesthesia team and may be involved in your care. So going back to what is anesthesia, the word anesthesia comes from Greek and translates to without sensation. So it's a state that an anesthesiologist brings on and controls in a patient in which there is a temporary loss of awareness. So this can include pain relief, muscle paralysis, a loss of memory, and unconsciousness. Dr. P, do you want to get into a brief history of anesthesia? Yes, I love this part. So now, as you can imagine, the entire history of anesthesia is pretty extensive, but I'll give you some of the highlights. Early anesthesia can be traced all the way back to the ancient times. So the Babylonians, Greeks, Chinese, and the Incas. The first record of Europeans using early forms of anesthesia was in the 1200s with the use of opium and mandrake plant juices soaked in sponges for pain relief during surgery. Hashish and Indian hemp were also used as painkillers, but none of these methods were even remotely as effective as what we have today. And most of the time, surgery was pretty brutal back then. The turning point came in 1846, when a Boston scientist named William T.G. Morton first used ether, an anesthetic gas patients breathe in, and he used this to anesthetize a man who needed surgery to remove a tumor from his neck. And so began the development of modern anesthesia. And in fact, you can actually still visit the Ether Dome at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, where this landmark demonstration was done. And after Ether came the introduction of laughing gas, or nitrous oxide, as well as cocaine, which is actually a local anesthetic, or basically a numbing medication. Right. But even at that time, they weren't using any forms of airway devices to maintain the patient's breathing. In 1902, the words anesthesiology and anesthesiologist were first introduced into medical vocabulary. But it wasn't until 1908 that the first airway device was even used, even though that's really a lot of the time what anesthesiologists are known for. It was first developed by Dr. Frederick W. Hewitt, inspired by his experience in 1905 when he anesthetized the future King Edward VII with a chloroform ether mixture but kept having to tug on the prince's beard to keep his airway open during surgery. Oh boy, and I can only imagine how that must have been. And since then, anesthesia has rapidly changed. Over the last 100 years, the entire anesthesia machine and systems have been invented and have gone through multiple changes and updates. And many different forms of airway devices have also been invented from simple metal devices to fiber optic cameras, which are essentially high-technology cameras. 
We also have new inhaled anesthetics that are far more sophisticated than ether and chloroform, as well as multiple intravenous or IV anesthetics, including propofol and ketamine. All in all, the advancements made in anesthesia since its first introduction have been quite incredible. You know, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard patients say, I'm not afraid of the surgery, just the anesthesia. And I know we said earlier that anesthesia is safe, but I do want to talk about the developments that happened starting in 1982. So in 1982, the ABC television program 2020 aired a segment called The Deep Sleep. 6,000 will die or suffer brain damage, essentially about anesthesia complications, brain injury, and death. And honestly, at that time, anesthesiologists were having a hard time obtaining malpractice insurance because although anesthesia claims were not the most frequent, they were the most costly due to the outcomes associated with medical complications. And at that time, mortality with anesthesia ranged from 1 to 12 per 10,000 as opposed to the 1 in 100,000 and probably even less than it is today. So to the credit of the American Society of Anesthesiology, instead of pouring their money into a campaign to better the reputation of the specialty in the eyes of the public, or fight for tort reform so that insurance payouts and malpractice insurance costs would decrease, they instead poured their funds into making anesthesia safe. So they looked at closed claims databases to figure out what the anesthesia accidents were to prevent them from happening in the future. And they developed various devices, like a pulse oximeter to measure oxygen levels in patients, color-coded various parts of the anesthesia machine, and introduced fail-safe devices to prevent catastrophic human errors, and so much more. So as a result of this huge undertaking, during surgery, just know that you are in the arms of the safest medical specialty, and anesthesiologists have been amongst the pioneers of quality and patient safety around the world. So that being said, now let's get into some of the different types of anesthesia you may experience in the hospital. There are multiple different types of anesthesia. There's sedation, general anesthesia, local anesthesia, regional anesthesia, and more. And you could be under one or more of those for surgery. Something the anesthesiologist would likely explain to you in detail. And I've also definitely gotten asked, what is the difference between sedation and general anesthesia? Because am I not going to be asleep either way? And that's a great question. The main difference is that general anesthesia usually involves a breathing device to help you breathe. There are also differences in medications used as well as monitors that may be placed as well. So local anesthesia is simply numbing medication like lidocaine at the dentist given to the site where you'll have surgery. And this could typically be done by the surgeon. Regional anesthesia, on the other hand, involves a nerve block that is done to numb a larger area of the body with effects lasting longer than the surgery itself. So you have good pain control afterwards. For example, the anesthesiologist may do a nerve block for your arm or leg for orthopedic surgery or an epidural or spinal for a C-section. And we'll go into this in detail in some of the upcoming episodes, but Today, we'll focus on other aspects of anesthesiology. And realistically, your surgery may involve more than one type of anesthesia, whether that's local anesthesia, regional anesthesia, or even general anesthesia. Right. So when patients say that they woke up during surgery, 
it really depends on the circumstances. So for example, if you had a colonoscopy and felt like you were awake or aware in parts, like maybe you heard voices, that is not out of the ordinary. Some surgeries are done with sedation, where you're effectively taking a very deep nap, but it's not general anesthesia. So there's a chance of being sort of in and out in parts, but still being pain-free, and that is completely normal. And let's go back to the safety of anesthesia for a second. We've already said that it's overall pretty safe, but let's talk about some of the risks. There are factors that increase your risk for anesthetic complications. Conditions like heart disease, high blood pressure, significant kidney or liver problems, lung problems like asthma or COPD, which go hand in hand with being a smoker as well, as well as sleep apnea, obesity, strokes, etc. But even then, the risk of complications is still pretty rare. Most of the time, we are able to manage your condition and keep you safe during surgery, even with complicating factors. So really, most of the risks of anesthesia are non-life-threatening, and most of which can be controlled for. The more common risks of anesthesia that you may encounter are actually nausea and vomiting. So this is due to the combination of the type of surgery that might be done, as well as anesthesia. And we do try to minimize the risk by giving you plenty of anti-nausea medications, both during as well as after the surgery. Another risk is a sore throat due to a breathing device from general anesthesia. And this is like most other sore throats, so it can go away with some time. Now, some of the more rare risks are cognitive dysfunction post-surgery, or basically problems with memory or attention potentially, as well as maybe an allergic reaction or breathing issues after surgery. But like I said, these are really the more rare risks that are associated with anesthesia. So I'm glad you mentioned that because let's talk about cognitive dysfunction. So like Dr. P said, it's basically memory and attention issues after surgery because I've gotten this question so many times. So patients, especially older patients, are rightfully concerned about cognitive issues post-surgery. Now, almost everyone has some sort of short-term memory loss after surgery, which could last like a few minutes to a couple of hours. So what we're talking about here is long-term memory issues, like weeks or months. But even this isn't that common. And if it is going to happen, it's much more common in elderly patients with significant heart disease or Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, or a prior stroke. And I'm going to go back to a second to the other risks that I mentioned earlier. Allergic reactions, as well as breathing issues. So One of the first questions we ask patients in the preoperative area is if they've had any problems with anesthesia in the past. So what exactly do we mean when we ask you this question? Really, what we're mostly getting at is, have you had a history of allergic reactions that you or even a family member related to you may have had? But even more specifically, even though we say allergic reaction, we also mean any complications with anesthesia. So for example, having a very high fever that developed during the surgery or a cardiac arrest or a heart attack during surgery, a long time to wake up after surgery. And sometimes some of these cases are rarely associated with the reaction to the anesthesia. So this is why we really want to know this information. The most serious of these reactions is actually called malignant hyperthermia, 
which is a genetic condition that essentially causes a heat stroke during surgery. Now, this is very rare. And if we do know about this from you, or if you know about it from a history in a family member, we would just really like to know so we can avoid the anesthetic medications that could potentially cause this. And in terms of breathing issues, we want to know if you've had issues such as sleep apnea or a history of breathing issues before other surgeries in the past, as well as severe asthma or COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And this is often associated with smoking, as we said. And we want to know all of this information so we can be best prepared to safely take you through surgery without complications. Yes, absolutely. And another question I get asked is, how do you know if I'm asleep? The risk of intraoperative awareness meaning being aware that you're having surgery during the surgery itself while under general anesthesia is 0.1%. So it's pretty rare. We have so many different monitors in the operating room, everything from monitoring your vital signs to brain waves to be able to assess how aware you are. And we keep titrating medications to keep you asleep as long as the surgery will take and wake you up at the end when it's time. And to go hand in hand with that, I also do get asked, How do you know when to wake me up? Well, there's really no short answer to this, although we do have years of training and experience to be able to titrate medications carefully to get you through surgery. And so our jobs aren't just to get you to sleep necessarily, but also to make sure that you wake up well at the end. And in fact, your anesthesia team members are the only people in the operating room that are not allowed to leave under any circumstances when there is a patient inside the operating room. The anesthesia personnel have to be there the entire time because we are managing the medications and machines to help keep you alive and safe. Speaking of waking up, I also get asked, how long will it take before I feel back to normal? Well, it really depends on the length of the surgery and the type of anesthesia. So on average, I would say that for most surgeries where you'll be going home the same day, you'll likely feel back to normal within an hour or two and fully back to normal within about 24 hours. Yes, and always talk to your surgeon to see what is suitable for your post-operative recovery, such as when you can eat food and other physical activities, as well as bathing, perhaps. Also, Mira, let's talk about propofol, actually. Ah, yes, propofol. It got such a bad rap after Michael Jackson. Exactly. And I hear people say that a lot as well. It's such a common misconception that it's an unsafe medication. And so we get many patients that ask us, are you going to use propofol? Because they've heard about propofol and Michael Jackson. But it isn't really the drug that is inherently bad or dangerous. It's how it was used. So if you have an anesthesiologist delivering the propofol and monitoring it carefully, and as well as you as the patient, it's an excellent medication and very safe. It's been used as an anesthetic agent since 1989, actually, in the United States. So it's been around a pretty long time. And the way it works is by binding to certain receptors in the brain to effectively cause unconsciousness. And it's a bit more complicated than that. The depth of the unconsciousness and the length of time and whether your ability to breathe is also depressed are all dependent on careful dosing of the medication, which is why it's not a drug to be used recreationally or without medical intention, but rather it's a medicine to be carefully titrated by an anesthesiologist. 
Now, I've heard people say that they're also allergic to propofol. This is also very, very uncommon. A true allergic reaction to propofol is actually quite rare. Most of the times, patients say that it burned as it was going into the IV, and that was very painful. Now, this can be a common side effect of propofol, but it only lasts a few seconds as you're drifting off into unconsciousness. It's not a lasting effect. So overall, this is a very safe anesthetic medication as long as it's used correctly. Speaking of medications, there are a couple of medications that I want to mention. So if you're on birth control, there are a couple of medications that could be given by the anesthesiologist that could cause your birth control to be not as effective. So those are Sogamidex and Apripotin. Sogamidex may be given during general anesthesia to reverse muscle relaxation and can affect birth control for up to seven days. Apripotin can be given to prevent nausea and vomiting after surgery and can affect birth control for up to 28 days. But your anesthesiologist will usually give you a handout after surgery with this information if these medications are used so that you can be reminded to use alternative means of contraception. Yes, that's actually a great point. And sometimes that information is also usually included in your discharge paperwork, but not always. So it's always a good idea to double check with the anesthesiologist before you leave the hospital if you have any concerns. Exactly. So now let's talk about the no eating and drinking rule because I know that I would be so thirsty. So why can't you eat or drink anything before surgery? Well, when you're under anesthesia, you're unconscious and can't protect your own airway, your lungs, because those reflexes are depressed during that time. So we have to protect it for you. Having food or drink in your stomach stimulates the production of acid. And when you can't protect your airway, you risk that acid and food coming up into your mouth via your esophagus and going down into your trachea, which is your windpipe, and your lungs causing a terrible infection and respiratory issues. This is called an aspiration event. While this is always a small risk for any kind of anesthesia, we want to do our best to prevent this from happening. So after numerous studies to understand emptying of food and drink from the stomach, the food and drink guidelines were formed. The guidelines state that you can eat up to eight hours prior to surgery and drink clear liquids up to two hours prior to surgery. Clear liquids are anything you can see through. So water, apple juice, black coffee, like actually black coffee, no milk, no sugar. And most of the time, you're kind of told like a blanket, nothing to eat or drink after midnight. That's really to simplify things so there's no confusion based on the time the surgery actually is since a lot of surgeries typically start around 8 a.m. Yeah, and let's talk about how that surgery day would go, as this may also help ease some of those nerves. It's obviously going to defer by hospitals, but basically you'll get there in the morning at the time that you've been told to come in, you'll get checked in, be seen by a nurse for an intake questionnaire, and after that, you'll meet the anesthesiologist and your anesthesia team who will speak to you about your medical history, consent you for the anesthesia, and place an IV. You'll also meet the surgical team who will speak to you about the surgery and obtain consent as well. And when it's time, you will be let to the operating room. I also want to mention that when you do get to the operating room, it's generally a bit cold, but we keep you warm in the operating room with our gadgets. So you'll also possibly see other people when you get to the room, 
And this may include a surgical technician, a circulating nurse, or even a medical student. Every member in the operating room plays a vital role in your care. That is completely true. The OR personnel are team members, each with a unique responsibility for your care. Now, getting back to some of the questions, another one of the common questions I've gotten, usually, you know, like as the patient is on the OR table, what if I pee during surgery? Well, if you pee, you pee. We've seen it all, really, so none of this bothers any of us. And if you are going to be having a long surgery, you will likely have a Foley catheter for the surgery that may or may not stay in when you wake up. And your surgeon will likely let you know if that's going to be staying in. This is important because in particularly long surgeries that involve fluid shifts like blood loss, we have to keep track of how well you're hydrated so we can prevent electrolyte disturbances and low blood pressure. So we monitor how much urine you're making. Also, it's less likely that you'll pee because surgery and anesthesia often disrupt brain signals that control the muscles and nerves of the urination process. So retaining urine and not being able to pee temporarily is the more common of the two complications. And I'm going to switch gears for a second and say that we'll end this episode on a light note. So let's talk about nail polish. Although this might be more your forte since you love the super colorful ones, Mira. That's <laughs> so true. So I do love nail polish. And nail polish used to be an issue because it would interfere with the operating room pulse oximeter readings that measure your oxygen levels. But with the new equipment, this really isn't an issue anymore. But if you want to be on the safe side, just avoid nail polish or use lighter colors. And similarly, yep, you can wear makeup if you want, but in terms of jewelry, you do have to take off any metal jewelry as it can interfere with some of the surgical equipment. And if you can't, you may just have to sign a waiver. What it really comes down to is less is more when coming in for surgery. I loved talking about anesthesiology for a change from our previous episodes. I really do enjoy this aspect of our medical careers, and we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as us. On our next episode, we'll continue with a few more details about undergoing anesthesia, but we'll specifically be focusing on anesthesia and pain medications while pregnant and breastfeeding. Is it safe? Can you take pain medications? And what about the saying of pump and dump? We're going to discuss all of this on next week's episode. Thank you for joining us. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the female pain docs for more content. Send us an email at thefemalepaindocs at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.